Welcome back to the Craft and Career podcast series featuring conversations with professional creatives from the arts, entertainment, and media industries. Here, we explore various approaches to craft and career, and even consider how those two can sometimes work together. I'm Derek Webster, Senior Associate Director for Creative Careers at Yale's Office of Career Strategy, and I'm excited to introduce our final guest for the podcast season, Julia Dahl. Julia, Yale College Class of 99, is a novelist, journalist, and educator. Along with her undergraduate work at Yale, Julia received a master's degree in creative writing from the New School and another in journalism from American University. She's the author of the award-winning novel Invisible City, the first in her trilogy of Rebecca Roberts' murder mysteries. She's been a reporter and editor for publications as diverse as the New York Post, CBS News, and Marie Claire magazine. These days, she teaches journalism at NYU, as well as freelancing as a manuscript editor, not to mention hatching all of the plots for her next fiction projects. Julia, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Craft and Career podcast. Welcome. Hello. How are you? I am so good, and it's so good to have you here. Um, so full disclosure, Julia, you and I were uh, in the same class at Yale. Yep. So it's also yep. it's great to catch up with you in, in all sorts of directions. Um, but I also, and, and primarily for this podcast, I, I'm really interested in hearing about your story, your process, and, and diversions, right, and, and pivots. Like you've got journalism in your background, you've got creative writing, including novels in your background prominently. You've got education in your background with some teaching, and you're also doing editorial work and and freelancing and that sort of thing. So, I mean, that's, that's the common thing for the writer, right? It has to be like many of these different things, but let's, let's try to break some of them apart. Okay, great, great, great. So how we normally start out is just kind of definition of terms. Like we call this podcast craft and career. Craft and, and, and even the word career can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. So when I talk about something like career, that, that word you know, is charged in, in multiple directions. What do you think about when we, we, we say like, what my career, like what is the career? For me, career is pretty indelibly tied up with economics, right? Like pretty much everybody has to have a job. Is your job a career? Maybe, right? And 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 it kind of depends on how, and really it kind of the difference between something being sort of, you know, quote unquote, just the job or being part of a career is, I guess, intention is the way I would say it, right? So like if you have a job, you know, mowing lawns at the golf course, right? And it's just during the summer and you're studying for an economic degree, maybe it's just a job. It's the way, the way you make money. Job is the way you make money. But if you have a job mowing lawns at the golf course and you're interested in getting into landscaping or you maybe are interested in golf course management or recreational management, then maybe that same job that is just a job to somebody is part of your career. Right. So so I definitely think of career, though, in the same way as I think of job like that, you know, there's sort of a sense of like a career is like a more heightened calling. You know, a career has a trajectory. A career has upward mobility possibilities, whereas a job, at least the way we think of it, is often just like the place you that pays your bills. Gotcha. Yeah. So intentionality seems to be a, a defining element. I think so, because, okay. you know, like I had jobs, food service for years, right? I was a waitress. I was a bartender. I was a barista. And to me, those were always jobs because I knew I, I you know, I knew I wanted to be a writer. Right. But I needed to make money. And this was a you know, way I enjoyed making money. But if I had wanted to be in the restaurant industry or become of some in some way, those jobs would have been part of my career. 
Right. Or even if you had wanted to be a food writer. Totally. Exactly. 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 That's great. No, I love that. That's a, that's a really helpful definition. Okay. So the other half, the other C, the, 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 the craft side, right. Uh, that's a, you know, that's a funny term that we use craft. Not, not everyone uses it you right. know, in the ways that we're talking about the creative sort of practice, but, right. um, but yeah, I'll, I'll leave it to you. Like when, when I say craft and we right. know we're talking about your writing and those other sorts of things, what do you think about when you think about craft? So I think craft, um, and I was actually talking to my husband about this because he is also, he's an artist. He makes handmade kitchen knives. And true craft, talk, yeah. right, 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 exactly. He uses his hands to, you know, make a hunk of metal into a, a beautiful knife. Um, and we were saying that like craft is like the set of tools you use that, that you develop over time to pursue your work, whatever the work is, right? And again, work can be job or work can be career, right? So like the way that craft works with art is at some level, art is in your head, right? Like you haven't, the, the, the genesis of the art usually is the idea. But if you don't have the craft elements, it's gonna be very difficult to make the idea come to fruition, right? So I feel like craft is something that you're constantly developing. And each job or career or calling has a different set of tools. The, and, and I think of the craft as the development of those tools, right? So like my work as a novelist, I have been developing that craft since I was 17, starting to write, you know, bad poetry and and little, you know, terrible vignettes and the, the worst play that's ever been written. And, you know, but like all of that <laughs> is developing. Okay, how do I learn to write dialogue? How do I learn yeah. to set a scene? How do I learn to build tension? And and that's part of the craft of writing fiction. But then also, you know, I was a journalist for almost 20 years. And when I first started in that world, I had developed the craft of being a reporter. And those tools are very different from the tools you need. I mean, there is some overlap. And actually, I teach a course right now that is an overlap of journalism and fiction writing, because I think there's actually a lot of overlap and things that writers on both sides can learn from the other. But I had to learn the tools, you know, how do you conduct an interview? How do you background sources? How do you, you know, get the thick skin necessary to have someone to not quit when someone yells at you, that kind of thing, right? And then, you know, same thing, the craft of teaching, right? So I started teaching journalism in 2018. And I feel only now getting on four years later that I, I feel confident that I have a strong set of tools that I am developing the craft of teaching. Yeah, I like the toolbox mentality there. I, I, and, and I like the, that you can categorize in those ways, both understanding, but maybe this wrench can work in both totally. boxes, right? Like, I, I, I like that as well. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That's fantastic. These are really two really nice frames that you've you've applied to it to our our show's title. Thank you. <laughs> so I'll 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 steal and carry <laughs> forward. <laughs> so craft side, right? Let's go deeper on that. So in in your definition, it's 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 tools. It's 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 what you carry. It's but in an important way, as you mentioned, it evolves over time. It gets stronger. It's an exercise in a lot of ways. What keeps you? in practice on a daily basis or weekly or, you know, whatever the routine is, knowing that you're sort of skipping between like the different formats at different times, what keeps you coming back to the table? What keeps you keeping the craft moving forward, exercising in those ways, any advice or thoughts on what that looks like for you and how, how you can sort of sludge through the dry parts and make it to the parts that, you know, sort of keep you active and engaged. Totally. So, you know, it's easier when 
your craft is your job, right? So like when I was a reporter every day, you know, I woke up, I called into the desk, they told me where to go, I did my work, or I showed up at the newsroom and the stories, I wrote stories. That is, you know, you can keep up with your craft because you're being paid to do so, right? <laughs> Novel writing and uh, screenwriting, poetry, stuff that you have to do an enormous amount of work up front, you know, yeah. And freelancey. Totally. I like nobody may ever buy this book. Nobody may ever say, you know, and like, and it's all basically work for free until you get to a, a place. And, you know, I finally got to that place after, you know, 15 years where you get a, a contract for a book. Right. And then, you know, somebody has paid you some money and you have a deadline and that kind of thing. But for that, showing up to the, the craft that maybe doesn't pay you money yet. Right. Or doesn't pay you enough money that you yeah. don't, you know, because most of us, which is 98, even, 98, 99 percent. <laughs> exactly. Like most authors I know who I would consider successful. Right. I think of myself, you know, I've been reviewed in the New York Times. I've won prizes. My books sell. OK, you know, not great, but it's not enough money to make, you know, a real living. Right. So you always have to remember that. And I think that's so important to tell young people is that like the number of people making a true living, right? Like able to support themselves, their family by health insurance on art is vanishingly small. Most of us, I mean, it's still, you can live the life of an artist, right? You can teach, you can do other side work. And frankly, often that side work feeds your art, right? right? Like right. in a million ways, we could talk about that. But the thing that, that keeps me coming back to writing, and for me, my sort of passion is fiction writing novels, right? Like it started as a child. I mean, I was at the library constantly every day. I had a new, you know, I read like voraciously. I read, I was constantly reading a novel and I love novels because I love, you know, I love to get really deep into a story. I sometimes I feel like short stories, some are wonderful, but like they're, I, I, I want to spend a lot of time with the characters if I really like them. If I don't like them, I just put the book down. <laughs> so I've been reading novels forever, but it wasn't until, you know, my late teenage years that I thought, oh, maybe I could write one. It, it didn't occur to me that I could maybe be part of this conversation that is writing, right? But I've always been a storyteller. I've, <laughs> I've always wanted to tell stories. And I used to, I, I used to like make up stories as a kid, you know, I'd sort of like, you know, not like harmful lies, but I would tell these like fantasy, you know, I would right, sort of pretend right. like I remember in like, I don't know, fifth grade, I had convinced all my teachers, I was obsessed with the Wizard of Oz. I had convinced all my teachers that I was born in Kansas. I was not <laughs> born in Kansas. I was born in California. Right. That's where I lived. Right. But I had the, you know, I wanted to sort of make up stories and sort of my mind was always going to the what if. Mm -hmm. What if I was born in Kansas? Maybe I really am. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so for me, the uh, a driving force of my whole life starting in my adolescence was I want to tell stories. And at first it felt like I wanted to tell stories about sort of my experience. Like I wanted to sort of, I think maybe a little bit validate what I was going through and the life I had. And in that way, connect with people and communicate, because really that's what writing is. And that drew me. But as I got a little older and frankly realized that I have a happy life, but it's but it's not the most interesting. You know, I mean, it's great. It's great for me, but that there were more way more interesting stories to tell out there. And some of that I learned from my life as a journalist, right, which is right. an amazing job to have if you're curious. Right. You will never be bored if you're a reporter. Every day you're in a different place, talking to different people and started gathering all these stories. And I was like, I want to tell these stories. And so the drive was to tell the story. 
But then the nitty gritty of like, I have a full time job. How am I going to find time to sit down, you know, get your like one of my writer friends talks about it as butt in chair time. Right. Like that is you can't a novel doesn't happen because you think about it all the time. Right. You have to sit down and you have to. Research can often become that distraction, that constant. Totally. Oh, I'm researching again. <laughs> I'm researching a novel. Right. I'm doing interviews. I'm doing research. Right. And a lot and a lot of my friends who are writers, especially writers who do like historical fiction, will just get bought lot, you know, they love the research, but then they realize a year later, I'm really avoiding writing here. <laughs> and the same thing with journalism. You can report a story and have, you know, hundreds of pages of notes and realize, okay, I need to start writing at some point. So I had a I had a high school teacher who used to talk talk about improving upon the blank page, right? And that's scary. You know, the blank page is terrifying. So I had the writer Anna Quinlan, who is, you know, a very famous novelist, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, reached out to me when my first novel came out and and sort of has been a closet fan, which has oh, wow, been yeah. really wonderful. She yep. writes me lovely emails when my books come out and say they're great. And it's just, you know, like she's one of those amazing women who just like supports other young women writers. Yeah. And yeah. I I invited her to come speak to my my class. We're, we're talking about writing fiction and writing um, journalism. And one of the things she talked about was, you know, people were talking about, oh, how do you deal with writer's block? And how do you just start writing? And she was like, I don't even think of it. If I'm having a hard time, I don't even think of it as writing. I sit down and I start typing. And just the typing gets something out. And as mm. you're moving you're moving. And then maybe you catch a sentence that works and you can go from there. Right. My, one of my other women I know, who's also a writer, a novelist named Megan Abbott, who writes really interesting sort of feminist thrillers. I don't know if you call them feminist exactly, but they're very female centered, but they're fantastic. Her latest book was called The Turnout. And it's about these sisters who own a ballet studio and, you know, it gets really dark. <laughs> and her writing advice is write badly. Just write. Right, badly. It's it's going to be bad Take to begin. The filter it's going to be right? bad. Nobody's first draft gets printed, you know. Just write, and especially with novels because they're so you know it's such a daunting task. You know, a novel is at least sixty thousand words, probably closer to eighty or ninety. Nobody's paying you. I mean, right. it's really <laughs> a daunting task to be like, I'm going to write a novel. Right. And a daunting task in in terms of just the allocation of time and and oh my god you know all the energy resource thought resource right, research right. resource all those sorts of things it, it's you not it's not be, lightly picked up <laughs> no and you have to you have to be a little obsessed and you have to be maybe a little bit hubristic right to be like I'm you know yeah, this novel me? will be of the great me. American novel <laughs> of course me I am the one to tell the story but you really have to believe that believe that your story is worth telling and believe that you're the one to tell it. And then just carve out, carve out time. And the most important thing with, I think anything you're writing is to finish something because once you've finished, you have something to work with. Right. But I really try to bang out a draft of a novel, not looking back so much. Sometimes I have to go back because, you know, I realize a big piece is missing or I need to change something, but trying not to go back and reread and, you know, fine tune that stuff can all be done later. Once you have the the blueprint, like the shell of the house then you can start you know hanging the windows and making the you know painting the outside and all that kind of thing so i do really believe in just put in the time move forward move forward move forward move forward and the way and and how you find how you put in the time is very different for everybody right like before i had a child 
I would, the way I would do it was I would take like two or three days and go somewhere, go to a friend's house that, you know, a friend had like a house upstate. I'd go for three days and just write all day. Creating your I, own residency. I got the opportunity. Exactly. And then I, then I went and looked for some, you know, real residencies and got a couple of those and did two weeks here or there. And that was how I got my first couple books done. And then I had a child and you you can't really leave for two <laughs> weeks. Right. Or like that was not something that was right. going to happen. So that, and, and my most recent book, which came out in September was, took the longest for me to write because it was written sort of the first time I was writing a whole book while being a mom. And I really struggled with like, where do I fit this into my life? Because so much of writing and making art is just walking around with it in your head and letting it form and thinking about the characters and the plot and the themes and what you want to say. And I just didn't have that much. Just the open bandwidth of it. Yeah. Time or brain space. Yeah, no, but exactly, exactly. And it was a huge struggle. It took me like almost four years to write this like 65,000 word novel. And I, the jo- I mean, it's not even a joke. I have 75,000 <laughs> words that I cut from this novel. Like That's there were the so journalist many. in you, that, that harsh editorial. <laughs> but for the, oh my God. I, yes, yes. I also was very, I really wanted this book to be really kind of short and brutal. Like I, I was at the time, I think, you know, it was my attention span was, shot and I was reading a lot of short novels and I appreciated that. And I'm like, I'm going to do this novel and it's just going to be like wham, bam. The novel I'm writing now, I'm doing it differently. And then I'm daily doing these like writing sprints. One of my novelist friends, Laura McHugh, who's a fantastic um, novelist. She writes about sort of uh, rural life in the Ozarks, really dark thrillers where I, I, I write thrillers and dark stories. She does like half hour writing sprints once or twice a day. And she found, and I have now found too, because I started doing this about five months ago, that having a whole day ahead of you, like often I'll only get a few hundred words. But if I tur- turn off the Wi-Fi, turn off the phone, literally put on like noise canceling headphones, turn on my timer for 25 minutes and go, I can get as much done in 25 minutes as I might in a day of like kind of piddling around. So I think I'm going to write this novel in a series of 25 minutes. Friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, what I love though, about this is you're, you're mentioning like with each novel, you're trying something different. Yes you know, and, and sometimes it might be about what's going on in your life. And, and, and that's a real thing. Like we're, we're authors, like we're, we're bringing something with us, but sometimes it might also be about the material. You mentioned that a, a, a direct, just in your face sort of story was what that, that previous novel needed. That's, I, I love the fact that you're listening to both of those things internally and externally, like what's needed and then finding within your daily schedule, like what, what will match yeah. that in a healthy yeah. way. That's yeah. great. You mentioned a couple times, you know, you didn't mention it directly, but I mean, just the sense that I, I get from the community building that you've been doing, that the people who have reached out with to you, people you've reached out to, could you tell us a little bit more about, one, I think young writers should should always hear more about the importance of community building. It's something I think we blow past when we're younger and we don't really recognize it. Mm. So what can you tell us about how that came about for you, how you made it important and, and what you put into building community? Right. Oh my God. My writing community is like a lifeline for me and it feels like a family. I mean, now we haven't seen each other in two years, right? But we're always on online texting each other. And, you know, I have three writing friends who like, I, I, you know, think in the back of my book who, you know, we're constantly texting each other about 
oh, this is hard or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the book's not selling as well. Or, oh, I'm so excited about the scene or whatever. And it just, it, it, it's so, so important in so many ways. I mean, it's important career wise, like the story of how I got my agent. I had written a novel in my twenties that was terrible. I couldn't get an agent. I couldn't sell it. Okay. So I go back, you know, I sort of do my thing. I go in, I'm in journalism. I decide to write another novel and when I was done, one of the, the writers I admire, I really loved was Gillian Flynn, right? She wrote Gone Girl. And I had actually worked with Gillian Flynn right after Yale. I, my first job was that I got an internship at Entertainment Weekly. And Gillian Flynn was like a TV writer there. She was, she's a couple years older than me, not much. She was young, you know, she was sort of new-ish, but yeah. everybody, you know, she was fantastic at her job. Anyway, so I like made photocopies for her, right? You know, and anyway, so then 12 years later, it was before Gone Girl had come out. She'd written two other novels, but she was not the like international sensation. So I messaged her on Facebook and I was like, hi, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm, you know, I was your intern, you know, 12 years ago or whatever. Do you, and I said, do you have any advice for a young writer? I've written a book and I gave her like, you know, a couple sentences of what my book is. And, and she wrote me back and said, you know, that sounds really interesting. Um, I passed it along to my agent. You should email her. And that's how I got my agent. And that was an introduction to me, first of all, in just how generous people can be. And really, in my experience in the literary world, so, and and my specific genre is sort of crime, thriller, mystery fiction. In that world, people are unbelievably generous. They are, you know, and just that Gillian was like, yeah, call my agent. And now her, we have the same agent. And so I now do that always. If somebody wants me to pass along to my agent, Absolutely. Right. And and it was an introduction to me, the idea that in this in this world, a rising tide lifts all boats, that we all understand there's not you know, there's not like a finite number of readers or people, you know, if you're if you're a reader, you are going to buy a lot of books. And if anything, a, a good book will build the market, totally. will build the, the readership that might you know spill over into my totally. own work. Like totally. That. And Absolutely. that's not true in all industries. And it's not always true in journalism. And I think journalism yeah. is tough because in the last 25 years, the pay has dropped. You know, people are getting laid off left and right. The job security is terrible. The job conditions are often really terrible. And there's a lot of, I think, a lot of journalists are really stressed. And so there's a, I feel like there's a little less organically of that, like, let, let, what's mine is yours. I'll share my contact or whatever. I mean, some of that, but a little less so. But as much as you can, finding that, finding those people and holding on to them. Like, you know, when you find, I did another internship years later at Salon, which is like an online magazine. And one of the guys who was there helped me with a story, which was like my first big crime or criminal justice feature story. And he really helped me out with it. And he didn't have to, you know, I was just the intern. I was there, you know, to make photocopies. But what he did for me, like, was teach me how to write this kind of story. And I will always now in, and that's part of the reason I went into teaching, right? It's like, I want to help teach young journalists how to write a great story to, you know, change the world, right? <laughs> and tell the stories that aren't being told. Yeah. But yeah. community, I think, is in, in any way you find it. You know, I'm now work for, you know, uh, I teach online. Like my, the graduate program I teach for is all online. So my students are all over the world. And yet we have a community. I mean, we're, we're on Zoom. But right, we, right. you know, now I feel like I know these people. I, I can recommend them for jobs. You know, I know in years, you know, someday if I want to write a feature, one of them is going to end up being the editor, right? Like I, and right, yeah. I truly believe in, you know, 
unless it is absolutely necessary, do not burn a bridge, right? Like do not, don't be, am I allowed to say a bad word? Like our, our, <laughs> our model in this, in, in my program at NYU is like no assholes. Just don't be, don't be awful. Like be nice to people. And, right. and they will remember you. And if you're yeah. generous to them, they'll be generous to you. And, and, and remembering too, that speaking of bridges, like the, the wood is green for everyone. Right. So totally. even, even if you know someone at, at a, you know, at one stage, like they might change five years, 10 years from now. And so keeping those channels open, totally. never knowing like what the new branch will, will bear. Like, exactly. Um, you never know if that person sitting next to you in class, I mean, in this, you know, at a place like Yale, especially like you yep. do not, you know, you know, your, your classmate might end up being the governor of Florida, right? right. <laughs> or, <laughs> or better or for worse. And, yes, you know, or yes. your classmate is a Pulitzer Prize winner or your classmate is an Oscar winner, right? Like the, or your classmate invented Fitbit, right? Like just the, the, like, you know, dude in sweats sit next to you, right? You yeah, never yeah. know who these people are going to be. And so building connections, I mean, also it's just a wonderful way to live to know people who do all kinds of things, but it's also smart. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It can do both things for you, which is nice. So that's a natural transition, transition, I think into the, that back to the other sea, the colder sea, the career side of this thing. So knowing you at Yale, I knew your journalism background. I knew that's what you were focused in. And, and so tell us more, get, get us from, the, that early phase and and you said story was always part of it and but the you know the skills involved you know branched in many different ways how did it move from the journalism to the incorporation of these other interests or at least you know the return of these other storytelling interests tell us more about how did that narrative worked and how the career built for you so my career was very much a winding road you know my, i said my first job out of yale was i was a uh, inter- intern and then i got hired as a fact checker at entertainment weekly i, I knew i wanted and at yale i worked on the yale herald there were no journalism classes at yale when i was at yale so all everything i learned about journalism i learned at the yale herald and i actually learned a lot but there was a lot i didn't know so i get you know and i wanted to go to New York city and be a journalist. I, I didn't know, you know, I, I applied for internships everywhere, right? The village voice, the New Yorker Vogue, and I got an a place at entertainment weekly and I loved, you know, movies and TV. And so that was fun books. So I worked there for a little while and then, you know, I wanted to stay in magazines. And so I looked for a job and the job I got was, and you know, at some level, it's like you, you take the job you're offered. And I got a job at a, a women's magazine called red book, which is no longer landed around anymore but it was about a hundred years old and it was a women's magazine aimed at women in their like thirties and forties. I had never heard of it, but I got a job as an assistant there. And, you know, it was like a step in the magazine world. I was working with other magazine editors. I like wore heels to work. I got to go to fun parties, you know, yeah, it's yeah. like, it was, it was the real thing. Devil's Wears Prada, <laughs> you know, but not nearly as bad. My yeah. editor in chief was not as bad as that. And, you know, while I was there, I, I, I was the assistant to the books editor. And so we would get books and we would decide like what books we're going to cover. And this, but then this was in about the, about 2000 and the already then magazines were starting to cut the space they gave to books, right? Like most magazines 30 or 40 years ago had a, a pretty robust book section that was dying. So when my books editor at Red Book left, they didn't replace her. They just said, well, Julia, you can be the de facto books editor. <laughs> so I was like, great. <laughs> to your you advantage, know. yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I got to do that job 
where I was, you know, looking for authors to interview. I was doing little blurbs on books and I, you know, that was fun. And I loved that. And then I got offered my editor in chief left red book to go to Marie Claire, which is another women's sort of fashion magazine and kind of considered more prominent. And I almost didn't go. And she asked me to go with her. And I almost didn't go because when I was at Red Book, I was doing books. And now I was like, well, this is what I want to do. I knew I wanted, I knew I like wanted to write a novel. And on in my spare time after work, I was like maybe writing short stories, but not a lot. It was kind of just something that I was like, I want to do this. I'm barely doing it, but eventually I'll figure it out. But you wanted to keep it alive, it sounds like. I wanted to, oh, definitely. You know, there would be nights after work that I would go to like the borders near my house and, you know, work on a short story. It was de definitely, I mean, my goal was I want to be a pub, an author. I want to write a novel. Um, and so working in the books world felt like, well, this is smart. I'm meeting editors. I'm meeting agents. And I just liked it. Like my job was they sent me books and I got to look at them and it was awesome. And transferable skill involved. Exactly. Exactly. But then my editor in chief said, you know, come with me to Marie Claire. You're going to be doing slightly different stuff, but it's a new opportunity. And I was like, I don't know. I'm doing what I like here. And, and I remember her saying, you know, like you're, you're, you never know where your career is going to take you. I, you know, I suggest you take the opportunities that come to you. This was a promotion. And I was like, all right. So I go to Marie Claire and it was, a. am very glad I did because the, a couple of the people I met there ended up sort of getting me into the next phase of my career, which was writing about crime and justice. I was at Marie Claire for a couple of years. And then I kind of was like, I, I got to the point where I knew I did not want to spend my life in women's magazines, but I kind of didn't no, I, I, I went back to school. I, I, um, while I was working, I was getting an, an MFA in fiction at the new school in, in Manhattan. So I was kind of doing that at the same time. Again, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm serious. I'm trying to write a novel, but I also was just not happy at a woman's magazine. I just kind of got, it just wasn't my thing. So, but one of the women I worked with at Marie Claire moved to 17 magazine. And there was this weird period of time in the early aughts where 17 magazine was publishing these 1500 word stories about crimes committed by or against teenagers. Wow. It, it didn't last that long because frankly, it was wildly in age inappropriate, but it was a good, it was, it was a good right. career opportunity wow. for me because my <laughs> friend yeah. knew that I loved murder mysteries and was like a big fan of law and order. And she was like, Hey, do you want to write this story about this 12 year old in Alabama whose mother murdered her? And I was like, yes, that sounds really interesting. More interesting than like the makeup story I'm working on. So I did that story and I had talk about craft. I had no tools in my toolbox uh, it, to write a story like that. Right. Like, you know, for going from doing features on like body image to, you know, knocking on the door of the next door neighbor where a murder took place and, and then trying to find out, yeah. get the police reports and autopsy reports and talk to social workers and talk to police and get transcripts. That it, I had no, I, I had no tools for that. I didn't know what I needed to get. I, it was, it was, and you know, I remember sitting outside the door that I had to knock on and for like 45 minutes, just like terrified to go in, you know, what are they going to think of me? This is so awful, you know, and it ended up being fine. Like I knocked on the door and I presented myself, you know, I'm a reporter with 17 magazine. I'm writing a story about your neighbor. Do you have a few minutes? And, and the woman, the young woman was like, yes, come in, let me talk to you, you know? And that was partly when I realized, okay, maybe I can do this. I was lucky enough that I have a kind of demeanor where people are willing to talk to me. I think I look kind of disarming. I'm, you know, fairly small and they'll tell me <laughs> crazy things. And that ended up basically being my, like I, and after I'd done that story and a few other things happened to me, 
I had a source who was murdered. It's kind of a long story, but I knew that I really like that. My passion was, you know, I still wanted to be a novelist, but that being a novelist, I knew was never going to, you know, was probably not going to pay the bills at least for many, many years. And I felt like when I, after I started doing these stories about the criminal justice system, that I finally found something that I was passionate about. You know, I, I started to see all these flaws in the system, all these people who were being hurt more by it than, than helped by it. All the sort of inequalities and all these stories that I felt like weren't being told. And I was like, this is what I want to do. I am going to be a crime and justice. I'm going to be a criminal justice reporter. I'm going to report on crime and justice. But I didn't know what I was doing, right? I mean, I didn't have any tools. So I applied to go to grad school again. (laughs) I have two master's degrees. Um, One, my MFA was mostly useless, although I did meet my husband there. So it was it was very useful personally, less so politically, professionally. Was it was it just as a quick aside, um, MFAs, oftentimes we talk with students about exploring those mostly for 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 the structure and to put someone into producing material for the connectivity, particularly with strength of faculty and potentially even with peer connectivity. I think different programs are different in those strengths. Um, did, did it do any of those things for you? It did the, the, you know, having two years where I was freelancing and I was just got to focus on writing a novel, even though it was bad and, and stuff was, was totally helpful, very helpful because then I realized, okay, I can do this. Right. I wrote, I wrote a novel once I can write a novel again and yeah, almost right. every novelist, you know, and Proof I'm sure- of concept. Proof of concept. Exactly. Exactly. And most novelists and screenwriters, you know, have novels in their drawers. That's like part of the deal. You have to write that first novel to like prove you can do it and then figure out all the ways that you've done it wrong. I didn't find the program I was in terribly useful. I had a couple good professors, but it was not, I mean, maybe, I, you know, maybe it was me too that I, I, but one of the things that I really wish that it had helped, or at least introduced us to was the idea, some idea of what the profession of an author is, like what the industry is like, what it, you know, we didn't do anything like you have to write a pitch letter for an agent. I didn't know that. Right. How do you write a pitch letter for an agent? Like that's really important writing that pitch letter. Right. We didn't even talk about that, you know? So I wish there had been some more practical and, you know, nobody ever, like there was always this like kind of fantasy that we were all going to be able to be short story writers and novelists. And like, you know, I like I, I would have liked some real talk, but right. At least that one seminar that could have sat everyone down and been right. like, "Hey, okay, so right, talk and brass tacks is what's really going to look like." Exactly. <laughs> You're not going to pay and the, the bills with any of this. Said, look at me. <laughs> I am. Look at me. You see me as a, a successful author. I'm here because I can't afford health insurance. Right. Like you know, I have to pay the bills, and right. so I teach. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That. I think about going to like those go to AWP and like those panels where like these luminaries of the field where you're like, wow, the, their work is so amazing. And then they'll be like, yeah, so I'm, I'm teaching. I'm also doing some editing. I'm yeah. also, you know, yeah, it's like, I know. you are. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So yeah. that's where, yeah. that's and, where we're all you at. Know, and, <laughs> and there's no, you know, there's no shame in that. That's how it goes. That's the life of the artist. It's like, we're the original gig yeah. workers. Yeah. Right. And so, right. so for me, it wasn't it, also, I, my grandparents had, had recently died and left me enough money to pay for grad school. I like my, my husband is still paying off okay. the MFA going into debt for an MFA is, I don't, you know, it's like not, when people ask me, like, should I get an MFA? Should I not? And, you know, I, I, part of it, I think is really, you have to consider the financial consequences. Like, can you do this without freaking yourself out over debt? If you can do it, 
because if nothing else, it's yep. just time to write. Okay, so I, I so I totally sidetracked you on that. My no apologies, <laughs> but we we were in the midst of career talk. We were in the midst of and and your your track had already gone in a couple of different directions, but journalism sort of emerged interestingly yeah. out of this short-lived Seventeen yeah. magazine yeah. doing yeah. you know the, you, these things. But it but it put you in a place where you realized you had both an interest yeah. and a skill capacity and a and, and it sounds like a yeah. burgeoning passion <laughs> towards towards doing yeah. that sort of what would eventually become detective and right. and, and other things right. down the right. road yeah so yeah 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 uh, give us the last the, the last bits of the 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 steps in those direction the last bits of that is that i i applied to, to get a master's degree in journalism and there was a program at american university in dc that did a one-year master's and i applied i got in and I, this was in, I guess, 2006. And I was like, this is what I need. I need the tools. I need somebody to teach me how to be a journalist, right? Like, I, and, I, and there were all these things. That I, I didn't know anything. I'd never heard of the inverted pyramid, which is sort of the standard way you write the standard format of a news story. I'd never even heard of that. I didn't know the word nut graph, which is like the sort of give me, give me all the information in a quick paragraph, right? The, the, there were all these things I just didn't know. I had sort of instincts about it, but I didn't know the details and, and I needed practice. I need somebody to be like, go out and write a story today, you know, go out and find a source today. And that was what journalism school did to me the, the, in a way that was exactly the opposite of the MFA program. The MA program was entirely focused on building workplace skills, right? Which was great. And that's exactly what I needed building yep. my, yep. my craft toolbox, right? That's where I got those skills. And so I did that. And then, and one of the things they, they will tell you in journalism school, and, and I will tell you too, is that if you want to be a journalist, the, the best way to start is to go work at some kind of daily newspaper or where every single day you have to like report and or write a story every day where, you know, I've been at women's magazines. We published once a month. Like there was, that was not the same pace, but learning how to work fast, work smart, but also just to go and, you know, be brave. I mean, you have to be so, you have to be curious and you have to be brave to be a reporter, right? Like you have to constantly be thinking, you know, is this what this person's telling me truthful? What, who else should I ask about this? What other questions are there? Where should I go next? But you also have to be, I mean, I did crazy. I, so I, I got a job at the New York Post, which is like the ultimate near tabloid, right? And, you know, I did, I had to do crazy stuff. And stuff that, you know, people screamed obscenities at me. They ran after me. They, you know, and I'm not that kind of person. Like I don't, I'm not confrontational at all. I hate that. Like, but I had to just say, okay, well, this is what I have to do to get my job done. I did realize pretty quickly in my work at the New York post that this was not something I need. I was going to do forever. Like there are people for whom daily, like tabloid breaking news, like that's their, that's in their blood. They can do that forever. This right, was not right. going to be me, <laughs> but I learned so much. And then I sort of parlayed, I did that for about three years. And then I got a job at a nonprofit news site called the crime report that basically I could write about anything I wanted as long as it was criminal justice related. And it was sort of a, a bet, you know, it was like, I could find any wrong or, you know, any un unjust Chase thing, issue, yeah. story and write about it. Yeah. It was amazing. And, and then from there, I got a job at um, CBS News. And that's where I spent the last like seven years of my career. I was in I was a crime and justice reporter mm -hmm. for CBS News in New York. So in a way, it kept rarefying towards that you know, a, a particular interest within what would eventually be a good groundwork for crime fiction. 
Exactly. So, and that, exactly. Did, so, you, did you yeah. know that was happening or did it happen it's, naturally? It's funny. So I, I had always, you know, I talked earlier about being a, a voracious childhood reader. I always tended toward the dark stuff. I read Stephen King like way too early. Right. And I read Dean Koontz and Agatha Christie <laughs> and I loved mystery novels as a kid. And that's always what I read in for pleasure. I almost, there was a period like in my MFA where I felt like I needed to read all only like literary stuff. Now I know that you, that there is mm-hmm. literary stuff that is, that is also crime fiction. Right, right. And now I just read what I want to read. Like I've sort of, you know, as you get older, you, you don't feel the pressure to be like, well, everybody says this book is great. I should finish it. Like, if I don't like it. I just don't finish <laughs> it. But yeah, like it, it did happen around this, around the same time that I realized like, wow, you know, my interest has always been in really kind of crime, right. And, you know, dark stories. And I'm, that's what I'm doing in my journalism. And it kind of hit me around, I want to say around when I got into a little before I I started journalism school, where I was at a Barnes and Noble and I picked up Gillian Flynn's first book, Sharp Objects, which was, and I remember this was before I had emailed her, obviously. And I remember being like, wait, I know that girl. She used to work at Entertainment Weekly. And I, I was drawn to the book because if you know this book, the cover of the book is really striking. It's just a black cover with an image of a razor blade on it. And I was drawn to it on the table. I picked it up and I thought, wait, I worked with her. You know, so I bought it, read it in like a night. And I was like, that is the kind of book I want to write. I want to write a like murder mystery, you know, kind of literary thriller. Right. And that and 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 before I thought I needed to write some kind of, you know, literary something or other, it just had never occurred to me. Why don't you write the books you read? You know, why don't you write a murder mystery? Why don't you write a a thriller? Those are the books you love to read. Finally, around the same time, exactly, it clicked. I'm going to write a crime novel as I started reporting on crime. So it was like, so all the, the interest together now, I'm, you know, the work I'm doing in journalism is also kind of, I'm learning about this world so I can put it in fiction. And then my first novel that was actually published that I started writing right after I started at the New York Post was about the, the first three novels I wrote are a trilogy about a tabloid reporter in New York City and who solves murder mysteries. <laughs> so I just like put the two together because so much of my work in journalism every day at the Post didn't make the paper. Like the most interesting stuff that happened to me never made the paper. And I wanted to tell those stories. And then I threw a murder in and, you know, Bob's your uncle. <laughs> <laughs> so, Julia, we're going to take a pause right there. Um, this has been such a pleasure to, to reintroduce and, and, and get this started. Um, and we'll come back around and, and hear more from you, okay? So, until next time, don't be afraid to use the word career and always stay crafty.